Last week, I, I mentioned to you that Romans is going to push on all of us a little bit in some way, at some point, at some time. Now, some of us have some baggage from maybe our church background or carry around certain church doctrine that will make some of Paul's words very hard, as we talked about that Peter said uh, last week. Uh, others of us have no church background. So as Paul begins to push on some things that our culture calls good, the book of Romans may have some things that are hard to hear. Well, today I'm going to make good on that promise um, that you're going to hear some hard things, and we're going to work through the second half of Romans 1. So let's start by simply reading the text that we are going to cover here this morning. For Romans 1:18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has known or shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, even since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to the impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. All right, nothing hard or controversial in that section. There said no one ever. Um, now, if you can remember back to last week, we were introduced to the theme of the book of Romans, and the theme was the gospel, okay? Paul said the theme and what he is building his case out for, I am not ashamed of the gospel, and neither are we here at TFAB, which is why over and over when you show up here, you're not going to get life hacks, right, or moralistic therapeutic deism, uh, where we just kind of give you lessons on how to be a better person. If you want that, you can turn on Oprah. But like Paul, we believe our greatest need is the gospel. Uh, after all, life is short, hell is hot, and forever is a very long time. So we need the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? It has been described 
as a pool in which a toddler can wade and yet a elephant can swim in. It is both simple enough to tell a child and profound enough for the greatest minds to indeed explore. Now, even angels, the Bible says, never tire at looking at the gospel. That's 1 Peter 1.12. They love seeing it, viewing it, exploring it. They are amazed by the greatest news ever. So we said last week that the gospel, it's news. The gospel is news. It's something that happened in history that changes all of human history. Uh, There was this great victory that took place, Romans 1 said, when Jesus, the one that was talked about from the beginning, from Genesis 3 and was declared throughout the Old Testament, finally comes onto the scene. He really lived, he really died, and he really resurrected. We explored those themes last week. And anyone that places faith in him, verse 17 told us, would be made righteous right? Or made right, if you would, in a restored relationship with God. Now, this good news happens because there's really bad news, okay? This good news is in light of the fact that the world is jacked up and we're a part of that world. See, the bad news is that we are all sinners from birth. This is where Paul is moving towards once we get to Romans chapter three. He's, he's pushing this direction, which that's what the next few chapters are going to remind us of. Now, if you don't believe that we are sinners from birth, that just means you haven't had kids yet, okay? That's all that is. Because I mean, from the moment that kid comes out, what is the most important thing in the world? Them. They are the most important thing in the world. From the time a child is born, they're like the pelicans on Nemo, where it's just like mine, 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 mine. That's, that is what a child is. You didn't have to teach your kids to be selfish. They were experts at that from birth. Now, which shows us that from birth to today, we are not right. We are a selfie-centric culture where life is revolving around our little worlds of a kingdom of one, right? So it's about us. Here, Paul anticipates the fact that you and I are going to say, why do I need good news? Why do I need a savior? Why do I need someone to come? I'm not really that bad. Why do I need to be made right? Or why can't I just do it on my own? Why can't I just pull myself up by my own bootstraps and get right with God? And Paul is going to kindly let you and I know it's worse than what you even thought because you don't even have boots. So he says, here's the bad news. And he is just going to fire away with a Gatling gun to all the they's, which is all of us. Okay, so here we go. Here is the bad news. So he he intros this book with, You need the gospel. And we're sitting back going, why? And now he's going to tell us. He says this, verse 18, once again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, before Paul accuses humanity specifically right? He's going to go through a list specifically. He says, look, God's wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness. Now, now, now what does all mean in the Bible? You've heard me say this a lot. All means all. You are Greek scholars. Uh, We will all find ourselves on this list of unrighteousness, okay? 
There isn't one part in this list of unrighteousness that is less worthy of God's wrath than any other. He says God's wrath is revealed against, first and foremost, ungodliness. What is ungodliness? It is a wrong attitude towards God. That is our vertical relationship with God. This is what you might call the breaking of the first four Ten Commandments. It is vertical related. When you read through the Ten Commandments, the first four are vertical. The rest are uh, horizontal against our neighbors. So he says, uh, you, you first have broken relationship. You have ungodliness with me and unrighteousness. Then he says to men, which is the corruption in our horizontal relationships, which are the last six commands of the 10 commandments. So there is a wrath because we don't love God like we should. There is wrath because we don't love our neighbor like we should. Uh, We don't really care about our neighbor. And instead of loving people, we tend to be very good because we're selfish at using people. Now, Paul says God's wrath is against this kind of attitude. That's bad news. That's a problem. This puts us, all of us, in a position of rebellion against God. Now, in our culture, verses like this tend to really bum us out, right? We don't like to talk about discipline or wrath. I mean, those are kind of scary terms that we just kind of would like to shuffle, mainly because we don't really understand that we are actually that bad. We don't think we deserve what that wrath is. We all think that we're like little snowflakes and unicorns that just need to be snuggled with tainted affirmation that says, you are awesome, right? That is what our culture wants. Or in the words of my high school football coach, Andy Maurer, he used to say, you think your crap doesn't stink. Like that's what he used to tell us. Very good illustration. But Lauren, I thought God is love. He is, right? One aspect of his love is his wrath and justice against this thing called sin. See, God is perfect in love. He's perfect in holiness. He's perfect in judgment. He's perfect in wrath towards sin. Now, a lot of people might be bothered by the thought of a God who reacts in wrath towards injustice or a God who reacts in wrath with judgment. Let me say this. I would be bothered by a God or anyone in authority who doesn't react. If you moved into a neighborhood, you didn't know it, but in the neighborhood, all of a sudden you realize that there's like mass writing, there is stealing, there's murder, there's rape, there's molestation, even if it was just like one time a year, like the purge, right? Let's just say you moved in and next door, you actually lived next door to the chief of police and you revealed to him what was going on. And he simply said to you, I know, I know, you know, I've been watching it for years. People will be people, boys will be boys if it works for them, right? And why don't you just go ahead and look the other way? You would be absolutely outraged that those in authority were not acting righteously towards injustice. So that is the, that's the concept here. So when you think wrath, you can't think like God's just like popping off. Like he's finally lost it. Like it's finally been stored up enough to where God just like loses it. The wrath of God is very different than human anger. If you can think about it like this, the alternative, the alternative to wrath is in the midst of unrighteousness, just simply having an apathy towards it. In other words, there's no wrath. There is just neutrality in the midst of any moral conflict. 
God is not neutral. I mean, he's not like the country of Sweden. Uh, His wrath is his like holy hostility towards evil. His wrath means he refuses to just let it go or just sweep it under the carpet. So his judgment is on it. Now the question is, is whom is this judgment towards? It says here, those who suppress the truth. Now suppression isn't simply ignorance, like they didn't know, right? They were never told, Uh, but rather they do know it. They simply choose to not acknowledge that the truth is really there. Uh, Tim Keller says that what what Paul is saying here is that when it comes to the knowledge of God, we actually know but sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. Now, does that sound confusing? Um, I'll, I'll put it like this. Near the end of World War II, the first town with a concentration camp that the Allied forces liberated was a town called Oldruf in Germany. Now, the Nazis tried to get rid of all of the evidence in the camp, but the Allied soldiers got there before they could do this. Uh, American GIs witnessed hundreds of dead bodies. And it was the first concentration camp that they had actually seen. Now, a few hours later, uh, General Patton arrived and promptly vomited upon witnessing the scene. The next day, Patton brought the mayor of the town and his wife to see for themselves what they had to have known was happening in their town all along. He ordered the mayor and every able body in the town to dig graves for each of the bodies that they had found. After they dug the graves and conducted a funeral for the deceased, Patton found out that the mayor and his wife hung themselves. Before their death, they left a note that read, we didn't know, but we knew. Okay? We know, says Keller, but we don't know because we really don't want to know. The truth is too uncomfortable and would demand too much change. So subconsciously, we suppress the truth. Now, if that's true, how do people deep down really know? Like, how is it possible for people to to really know that there is a God, that there is a creator? I mean, is that even possible? Well, Paul anticipates that you're going to ask that question. So he says this, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without a excuse. He says man is inexcusable over this idea of Is there really a creator God? Because God has not made it hard for them to understand that something outside of them exists. How so? Well, first he says, God has put in the heart of mankind. We know this and we'll look and explore it further next week. But he has put in our hearts what is in fact right and what is wrong, right? Every society has a basis of what that is. And most societies match up and agree. Why? Because someone outside of us put that there and you don't have to be an adult even to figure out that there is right and wrong in the midst of your heart, do you? I remember when my son Isaiah, he was like 
almost three. I'm going to owe him like five bucks for this. But when my son Isaiah, every time I mention my kid's name, I have to pay him. Uh, I remember when Isaiah was like almost three and we had just moved into like our, our, our new house. It was like six years ago or whatever and had met our neighbors and we'd been in the neighborhood for a few weeks. Well, one day, I walk out back to the property and, and, and he's kind of coming around the fence of, of where our neighbors are at. And you can just see it written all over him. And what I mean by see it, it's guilt and shame that just like, like went right down him. He knows he did something he shouldn't have. And so I looked at him and I, and, and I happened to see that in his hands, he, they're just filled with like fruit snacks. Okay. He's just got a bunch of fruit snacks. And I'm like, dude, where did you get those? Uh, because we didn't buy them. Those aren't from our house, right? And he points over to the neighbor's house. And I'm like, did they give them to you? And he just shakes his head and he says, no, they weren't home. <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm like, wait, did you just walk into their house climb up their pantry to get those snacks. Now the guilt thing is like really hitting him. He's almost three and he just nods, right? Like, like, yes, that is exactly what I did. Now I'm horrified. Now I've got that whole thing going on. My three-year-old is basically facing a felon one account for burglary. So I go with one more question. How many times have you done this? He looks down, he starts counting. <laughs> and he's like, I don't know, you know, and that is where he is. But he knew, right? He knew in, from the very time he stepped, he knew that there was something he shouldn't have done, right? And I never had to sit down and explain to him what burglary was, all right? So there is a general morality that is graven into humanity. Now, not just morality, which is written in the midst of our hearts. How about our longings for things like love? How about our longing for like meaning and eternity? Why do we have those? Like, why can you love? Why can you sit back and wonder, there's got to be a purpose. There's got to be meaning for what life is. Uh, the atheist philosopher, Albert Camus, said that we long for love without parting, but that a universe without God gives us only the conscious certainty of death without hope. Camus called this the absurdity of life. He said life basically was one long tragic, absurd comedy as we think, as we seek things from life that life simply can't provide to the human heart that's seeking it. But being brave, he said, was acknowledging that and plodding forward into the darkness anyway. C.S. Lewis had a different answer. He said this, a baby feels hunger because there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim because there is such a thing as water. Men feel the sexual uh, desire. There is such a thing as sexual intimacy. He says, if I find in myself a desire for something with no experience that this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Which explanation do you prefer? That our longings for meaning and justice and eternity are just some cruel, like, accidental joke? Like, it just kind of blasted in with the big bang? Or that they are whispers that we have been created for something else? 
Now, it's not just the evidence inside us, whether it be morality or the longings that we have. God is revealed, it says here, all around us. Creation reveals that there is a creator. The reason our world looks like it was designed is because there was a designer behind it. If the world began 14 billion years ago with a big bang, where did the materials that caused the big bang come from? You can't keep going back in like infinite regress into nothingness. Eventually, something has to come from somewhere. Nothingness can't simply explode. In his book, God Delusion, Richard Dawkins admits this is a major problem. He says, Darwin's theory works for biology, but not for cosmology or ultimate origins. Cosmology is still waiting for their Darwin. In other words, he thinks that while they have explained how life took shape on earth, he admits they still have no idea where life itself or the materials that produced life came from. We need a theory, he says, as to why anything exists because it is self-evident that nothing from nobody can't equal everything. Uh, Gnostic uh, Robert Jastrow, an astrophysicist in 1978, he stated this, Now we see how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. Consider the enormous of the problem. Uh, Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain moment. It asks, though, what cause produced this effect? Who or what put the matter of energy into the universe and science cannot answer their questions? For the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a really bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been there for centuries. Life here is a miracle. You cannot look out and not see design or, 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 or creator in the midst of this beautiful creation. Scientists say that life on earth depends on multiple factors. The fact that you and I are here today breathing is an absolute miracle. Uh, that these, the, the, these things are so precise that if they were off by simply a hair, life could not exist. They call this the Goldilocks principle, that things are just right for human life. For example, the makeup of our atmosphere, 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, 0.5% uh, argon, 0.03% carbon dioxide. If some of those levels were simply slightly off, for example, if the level of oxygen dropped by 6%, we would all suffer. If it rose by 4%, our planet would erupt into a great giant fireball and we all die. That's what happens, right? Or if the CO2 were just a little higher or just a little bit lower, then the earth would either become an oven or have no atmosphere at all. And guess what the answer is? We all die. Or this, the water molecule is the only molecule whose solid form ice is less dense than its liquid form, which means that when it freezes, it actually floats. If ice did not float, it would sink to the bottom and the whole ocean would eventually freeze from the bottom up and we all die. 
that's what happens. If Jupiter wasn't the size and in the orbit it is, uh, astronomers predict that there would be 10,000 times the number of asteroid strikes here on Earth. Have you played the game of asteroids? We all die. That's what happens. <laughs> I haven't even touched like the human body and your DNA makeup. Francis Collins, head of the Human Genome Project says, how could a cosmic accident ever result in something of this digital elegance of a DNA strand. It's like thinking an explosion in an ink factory could produce all of the wonderful works of Shakespeare. Impossible, right? C.S. Lewis, no philosophical theory which I have yet come across is a radical improvement on the words of Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creation reveals creator, which means... We got no excuse to acknowledge that there is someone, there is something behind all of this. But what happens is we then try to suppress the truth, which results in what? When we kick God to the curb, what happens to the human heart? When we humanity say there is no creator, uh, these hearts that were actually created to worship something bigger than us, these hearts that have longings and purpose for something so much greater, what happens to the human heart? Well, Paul once again anticipates that question. He tells us this in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their own thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We fail to honor God by choosing to worship the creation over the creator. We fail to honor God by believing the lie, he doesn't exist, over the truth. And what is the lie? The lie ends up being kind of the similar lie that Eve was fed in the garden. And that is, you can be smarter than God. God's holding out on you. You'll know more than him. You know better than God. You can handle this life stuff better without him. And you know what this is actually called throughout scripture? This ends up being called idolatry. Idolatry is taking good created things and making them things that we worship and we make them ultimate things. Uh, you might think, I don't have uh, some of those. I don't have a creepy stone image that I worship, but some of you have a very creepy boyfriend and he's number one. It's not God. That's a created thing that you give more value or worth to than God. And we bow to this stuff all the time. We place ultimate value on them all the time. It's where we invest most of our time, our talent, our treasure. You know what you're worshiping by what you give everything to. It's what we say, without this, I could not survive. And we use it also to validate our meaning in life. We use whatever that thing is that we worship to talk it up, to make sure that we have meaning, that we did something, that we have value. By doing so, we make the declaration of our independence from God. We are not thankful because we do not accept what he has done for us. So then what happens? Like if I make these other things ultimate things, if I have suppressed uh, the fact that God actually exists, what then happens in, in my heart? Verse 24 and 25. Therefore, God 
gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather, or worshiped and served the create creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The Bible says here, God gave them up. If you're outlining stuff in this passage, three times it says God gave them up over to three different things. Verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. This is what it means that his wrath is being poured out. What does it mean that God's wrath is being poured out? God's wrath is revealed in a couple ways in the scriptures. First, we understand that there will be a future judgment. At the end of time, we talked about this in Daniel, there is coming a wrath for all those that haven't believed the gospel. Okay? There's a final day of judgment, which we said several weeks ago, we all need, but we can't have, which is why we need Jesus to take our place. Second, at the end of Romans, Paul's going to talk about a wrath that comes just through the government, like the administration of justice, through police, through judges, so on and so forth. They can actually act as governing agents of wrath in a society that's gone wild. Third, and what we see in the rest of this letter is that God gives people over to their sin. God gives people over to their sin. That's his wrath, right? When God hands them over, you notice that terminology, it is not because God is abandoning sinners. It is because God cannot compete with our misdirected loves. Idolaters, for example, exchange the love of God for the love of a creature. God's handing over is a deeply painful acknowledgement by God that he is not forcing himself on his people and he can maintain his claim of deep love for us and because he loves us he must hand us over and eventually over to as the end of the text says death do you know what this means God's wrath in my life is when he gives you up to what you want God's wrath is when he says okay Go ahead. You can do that. Notice he didn't impede on your sinning this week, right? He didn't stop you. There wasn't some miraculous thing that happened. Uh, you want that created thing more than me? He says, okay. How's it working for you? Not awesome, right? We think those things free us when we run to them, where we look for pleasure and, and hope and satisfaction and validation, but instead those things enslave us and control us and we just keep going back. They never satisfy and there is this insatiable need for more of whatever that thing is. When you put the weight of your trust and your hope and your desire on that, how is it holding up, right? Whether you can go down the list, whether it's like money, finances, stability, power, relationship, eventually the weight of what I put on that can't hold. As a follower of Jesus, then it is actually God's grace when I get caught, which turns us back to him over and over again. Well, what did he give them up to? Let's read this. Well, now Paul is going to give a long list of us worshiping creature over creator. And it is a long list. That's very important. So God says, it's my wrath. I'm giving you up to these things, okay? You want them, you can have them. And as we look at this list, all of these things, we need to remember that every single one of us are in this boat. The they here in the text 
is me, okay? The they here in the text is us. This is us, right? The they here in the text is not the people out there, but us in here. This is our selfie moment, TFAB, Romans 1. And the first one on the list was right here. It says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The word there, lust, literally means over-desire, over-desire. This is the idea that we take something good, something created, and we over, we lust, we over-desire it. We take good things God gives and we worship it. What Paul is saying here is that a false understanding of God always leads to a false understanding of sex and over-desire. Here, Paul doesn't even tell us what kind of sex this is, but if you take the greater narrative, it's anything outside of marriage. Idolatry and the worship of self always lead to unhealthy desires for self. So anything outside of the covenant of marriage degrades our humanness. We experience wrath, if you would. You think you're just filling desire, but the Bible says you're actually experiencing wrath that's built into the system of brokenness and sin. It's God's wrath on and judgment. God has said, don't do that. You say, I don't need you on this one, right? I don't need the creator on this one, right? And God doesn't just strike you down dead, but rather says, okay, have it but it's not going to go the way that you think it's going to end. And because God was the original author of creation and the author of marriage in the garden, he gets to be the one that defines how this works for his kids. And as Paul is arguing from creation, the whole chapter is from creation, he has Adam and Eve, one man and one woman for one covenant and one lifetime in mind. So then what does over-desire look like? What does is, what is my lust look like? That over-desire is a massive term, right? It can be idolatry uh, as far as like sexual immorality. It can be adultery, which destroys relationships. It's pornography that demeans the value of men and women. It's someone's son, that's someone's daughter uh, that was maybe kidnapped or put into the slave trade. That's, you know, key parties and swingers and open relationships. That's who you're living with. I mean, there's a pretty large list here in verses 20. 24, 25, and 26. And God says, you want that? You want to suppress the truth? I've declared the truth. You can have that. Then he says this, verse 26 and 27. For this reason, God again gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion one for another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Where we are in the state of our culture, this is probably one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. Welcome to TFAB. Uh, it is the longest passage on homosexuality in the Bible, okay? So you just, let's just put that in perspective. It's the longest passage. It doesn't get a ton of play in the Bible but it's right here. Historically, the church pastors have done an absolutely horrific job talking about this. Horrific. And we have failed miserably for caring for people that wrestle with same-sex attraction or are involved in any aspect of the LGBTQ way of living. I also want to say, before I jump into this, that I have homosexual friends 
I have friends that are struggling with gender dysphoria. I have friends working through the idea of, of transitioning that I dialogue with a lot, okay? Having said that, I also have friends that looked at porn this past week. I've had friends that have committed adultery that doesn't keep me from telling them what the Bible says about it. Because at the end of the day, the Bible is my authority. It doesn't matter what I think. I have to ask, what does the Bible actually say about this? Not, is it popular or is it politically correct? Are we going to lose our tax-exempt status over this? Uh, I have to say, what does Scripture actually say? Now, what does Paul say here? One of the results, one of the results, and we're all in all of these results, one of the results of displacing God in the center of our hearts and exchanging a lie for truth is to reverse what God has done in the garden, okay? All throughout this text, Paul has been arguing from creation. In one sense, we should not be surprised uh, by this idea where Paul turns to first, and I need to understand, he is not picking on homosexuality. He's not nor is homosexuality the main theme of the text. The gospel is. If God made us, though, in his image as male and female, then it shouldn't surprise us that the effects of our rejection show up in how we do relationship, okay? In recent years, some have tried to say this passage refers only to certain kinds of promiscuous homosexuality, okay? So trying to, trying to read into the text, trying to define the text in a different way, right? So they will say that all this homosexuality is that, that Paul is talking about here is prostitution um, or it's one night stands or uh, a very popular one is it was domination from masters in the Roman Empire forcing themselves on younger boys or, or younger people. It was, a, it was a dominating thing. It was like rape, if you would, okay? Basically, they say, Paul was unfamiliar with what we would know today as a committed, loving, homosexual union. So they would say, this text doesn't apply to what we're dealing with in our culture today. Now, I have to say, I, I mean, I, I, I've read those arguments and I have poured over those arguments. It's simply not true. And there is historical evidence that in Paul's day, there were homosexual relationships that were in loving committed form, and they existed in Paul's day, and he knew about them. If you want the list of those, you can read the books that I'm offering to you, or we can talk later. But what makes this passage particularly clear is that this wasn't simply male domination. So, so one of the greatest arguments against this is we actually see here what would have been more unlikely, and that is he actually mentions women with women. The point is that the Bible says sex is for married people. And by marriage, the natural sense of what marriage was, one man, one woman, one covenant, one lifetime. So if you want to know where TFEB stands on this, I think you understand. We want to be loving, understanding. We want to know that the fall affects us all and it affects every person differently. The lust of my heart might be different than the lust of somebody else's heart but we are not affirming. Now, just because I don't affirm everything my own kids do, that doesn't mean I don't love them. Doesn't mean I'm not understanding of them. Doesn't mean I don't welcome them. Doesn't mean I don't feed them or take care of them. So the question then becomes is like, what does it look like to be at TIFA? Are, are, are people 
like this. You mean like us? Are people like this welcome? Of course they are. Because we are also the they in the text. All of this. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all had over desires. See, the gospel is a movement for all people. The gospel is not once you start into it and you start acting right, then you can kind of come along and be a part of this thing called the church. No, if we say at TFAB, it's only a place for people that have no sin, then I'm the first one out and I resign today, okay? Yet having said that, We're not gonna dance around what the Bible says. The Bible calls us all out. And you know what? He's not done. So if you don't think you were in the first list or the second list, you're in the next set. Here we go. (laughs) And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil covetousness, So the Bible says here, look, you are in fact unrighteous. That's us. We are evil. We have evil covetousness inside of us. Oh, you might think, I don't really covet. Look, if you watch HGTV, you covet. You were cool with your house until you saw Chip and Joanna throw up some shiplap and you were like, shiplap, I gotta have shiplap, right? You gotta have it, right? Uh, He says, you're deceitful. (laughs) Anyone... This week, you're like, I'm not really deceitful. Anyone like have to go through like one of the contracts on, on like you're filling out on a website and you accept it and you said you read all that stuff. You didn't read all that stuff. You are deceitful. Um, it goes on. He, he says slanderers. That's Twitter. Uh, he says haters of God, insolent. That, that, that means rude. Uh, he says haughty. Now, for those of you that are teenagers, that's not haughty. That's haughty. And that is a pridefulness. That's our Kardashian culture. Uh, inventors of evil. I mean, some people are doing such shady stuff, they're thinking up new ways to do evil things. And then he caps it all off with where we all were at some point, and that is disobedient to parents. I mean, this is not an exhaustive list, right? This is, this is a list to indict. This is him with the Gatling gun, but it's not like those lists are just it. No, he's simply saying to us, everything about us, because of the fall, because of our unrighteousness and because of our rebellion, it's tweaked everything. There's sexual disorder, there's economic disorder, there's social disorder, there's spiritual disorder, there's family disorder. I mean, he just rocks through this thing and is like, we're jacked up, right? There is no part on this list that is any different than any other part. You got that? We got that? We understand this, right? No part on this list is different than any other part. Well, how can we fix this? Maybe we just need more laws, right? We need to vote the right people in, change people through new regulation. Look, that doesn't work. When has law ever been able to regulate the human heart? Hasn't. All the law does is reveal that we're lawbreakers. Like all the law does is is reveal, like I'm, I'm in trouble. Like I'm an outlaw. The chief sin in all of this, the number one sin, and the sin that gets you separated from God forever, it's not over desire for sex. It's not your deceit. It's not your lying. It's not even homosexuality. Do you get that? 
Homosexuality does not send you to hell. You know how I know that? Because being a heterosexual doesn't get me into heaven. Okay? The chief sin is rejecting Jesus and making him center. That is it. The one that saw you in your sin and said, I love you and I'm going to take your place and take your wrath that you deserved on me. I will impart my perfect life for you, you, the imperfect one. No matter who you are on this list, your only hope is the power of God in the gospel. That is your hope. And if you get the gospel, that is that we are way worse than we ever thought, but what God gives us is so much more than what we deserve, it should humble us. There's no us and them divide or we're better because of this. This creates in me a compassion, the same compassion that Jesus has extended to me. And I can in truth and love care for anyone on this list, knowing that their great need is my great need and that's Jesus and the gospel. Let's pray. God, we see in this list our depravity that we are more broken and messed up and tainted than we ever dare thought and yet we also see man, your kindness that there is good news and that good news is, is offered to the world that you gave your son for and to all those that believe that you, the begotten son, have taken their place, have exchanged yourself for them, that there is offered up everlasting life. God, we pray that the gospel would make us humble, compassionate, that like you, Jesus, we would be seen as the friend of sinners because you are. That we would be patient with people on their journey in the gospel. That we would weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice in their journey in the gospel. We are thankful that the gospel has hit us and you have loved us. Today, we give you praise for that. We now respond to you in worship, worshiping not these created things, but worshiping you, our creator, who's over all things. In Jesus' name, amen.